Good morning. Our grade school kids are going down to their class. That's what this mass exodus is. Um, turn in your Bible, go to Acts 9. Acts chapter 9, we began um, our study in Acts near the beginning of the school year and took a little time off during Christmas and the holidays, uh, but we're jumping back into Acts this morning in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 1 through 9. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly... A light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Father, uh, open our eyes, hearts, minds uh, to your word this morning. Um, we acknowledge that this is your revelation to us and want to understand the, the heavy importance and significance of it, Father. Um, so bless our time as we um, study your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There is an old story that I would say just about every preacher has used multiple times. And if you've read a handful of Christian books in your life, you've probably seen this story, but it illustrates um, where we're going pretty well this morning. So there was, in, uh, back in England in the late 1800s, um, there was this drunk man who was coming out of the bar and was kind of loud and boisterous, and he came up to Charles Spurgeon, the renowned uh, preacher uh, there in London, and he said, Mr. Spurgeon, do you remember me? And Spurgeon was taken aback, and he asked, no, sh should I? And the man, stumbling over his words, said, I'm, I'm one of your converts. And Spurgeon looked at him and responded, well, you must be one of mine, because you're certainly not one of the Lord's. Uh, People can be converted to a lot of things. Uh, when I was a kid, I kind of went back and forth on my favorite NFL team, right? Like, depending upon who won the Super Bowl that year. Um, but I can say that I've been a Dallas Cowboy fan since single digits. Um, I was converted to the Dallas Cowboys. You can be converted to a lot of things. And... People can be converted to a lot of things about theism, 
belief in a God. They can be converted to a lot of things, even about the church, um, without actually being converted to Jesus. You understand? People can be can see the appeal of a lot of things that church or God has to offer, but not really truly being converted to Christ. Um, it might be the music. It might be entertaining preaching, someone who can tell a story well. Um, manipulate the emotions. Um, some people can be converted to liking church because of the networking that's in, involved. Um, they feel a sense of community, a belonging. Not a bad thing, but not necessarily true conversion either. They might like the food at church. Thought I'd hear some amens on that one. Um, they might appreciate the family values. They might, depending upon the church, they might appreciate the conservatism. Or, like I said, depending upon the church, they might appreciate the liberalism. The gospel spreads into the world. That's the theme of, of Acts as we jump back in here. What has happened, we left Acts chapter 8 and we left uh, Philip who was um, proclaiming the gospel uh, to the Samaritans. And the gospel is going from Jerusalem into Samaria. And as we go through Acts, we're going to see that it does indeed spread into the known world. Um, but here in our context, in the last couple chapters, we've seen that uh, the church is being scattered from Jerusalem because of persecution from the religious leaders, particularly in, in Jerusalem. And there is a, a young man among their group named Saul, who has been savagely attacking the church. He was in favor of when Stephen was stoned and put to death. He was even holding people's coats while he was being stoned. But even though the church was being persecuted, that persecution did not squelch the young church. In fact, it just expanded it instead. Um, what, what we see here in our passage here is the conversion of Saul. And the conversion of Saul is going to propel the mission of the church even more. But we've got to ask the question, what, what caused Saul to be transformed from what he was? Uh, uh, someone who so intensely opposed Christianity to becoming a very loud and bold proponent. What, what, what happened in his life in order to change? In fact, some uh, Christian apologeticists look at this event and the transformation of Saul, and, and it is a, um, uh, an evidence and an argument for the resurrection, the historical resurrection of Christ. This is a big event in Christianity that we just read here in verses 1 through 9. So what caused Saul to be transformed into a loud proponent of something he so intensely opposed? Well, Saul was transformed by his encounter with the risen Lord. The risen, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 9, Paul is possibly quoting from an early Christian statement of belief or, or hymn. 
uh, and he's talking about the, the resurrection. And he says that, talking about Jesus, that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive at the time that, that Paul wrote this in the early 50s. He says, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So this is what Jesus does. He transforms lives. All right? So that's our main idea this morning. The real Jesus transforms people. The real Jesus transforms people. Another way to say this is is real, uh, real salvation, real conversion is going to have some kind of fruit of transformation. The real Jesus transforms people. The first thing we see in this, this text this morning is Saul the persecutor. Verse 1, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Um, King James here says breathing out threats and murder. The idea is actually taking the breath in. And so it's this idea that he is so passionate about chasing down these Christians that it's kind of his lifeblood. It's, it's the motivating factor of everything in his, in his life at this point. And so he goes to the high priest so he can get these letters, a badge, whatever you want to think of it, an ID Um, So he can go to the synagogues in these different cities, and specifically here in this instance, he's going to go to Damascus, where the the Jewish religious leaders had worked something out with the Roman governors to where they could bring uh, Jewish citizens back to Jerusalem to stand certain trials. And so they did have some jurisdiction over Jews in Damascus, even though it was outside of what we typically think of of Israel at that time. And so to get uh, these letters um, would kind of be like uh, flashing an ID badge if you worked for the IRS or something, right? You, an IRS agent you want on your side, <laughs> right? Because they can cause a lot of, a lot of problems. Um, and so Paul, Saul gets these letters um, as he's traveling, and it, it's going to open doors for him on the way. It's going to make his, his task that much, that much easier. But um, he's spending a lot, lot of uh, energy doing this. Um, Damascus from Jerusalem is about 135 miles away. At that time, it might be like a, a six-day journey, depending upon how many miles you can cover in a day. 135 miles, let's put that in perspective. Uh, It's about 133 miles to Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, 135 miles to Raleigh, uh, 120 or so to Charlottesville. So this is a good little journey on on foot. Um, And Damascus has a, a significance because it's kind of like a hub of activity. The NIV Cultural Background Study Bible uh, 
explains it like this. It says, Damascus represented much more to Saul, the strict Pharisee, than any other stop on his campaign, campaign of repression. It was the hub of a vast commercial network with far-flung lines of caravan trade reaching into North Syria, Mesopotamia, Anatolia, Persia, and Arabia. If the new way of Christianity flourished in Damascus, it would quickly reach all these places. So from the viewpoint of the Sanhedrin and of Saul, the arch-persecutor, it had to be stopped in Damascus. Um. So this isn't like a side hobby. This is kind of an important part of the strategy of Saul and probably the rest of the Sanhedrin. So, so Saul, here the persecutor in verses 1 through 2, everything uh, about him is geared towards this. This is kind of his identity at the time. He is a persecutor of Christianity. He is going to squash it before it can go any further. Okay? Verse 3, so we've seen Saul the persecutor, now let's see Saul the convert. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. In Luke's writings, this makes me think of the the shepherds that are out on the, the hill watching their flocks by night. And lo, suddenly an angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And so a light from heaven shines on him, and he he immediately knows that that something is up. This is something supernatural. This is something significant. Verse 4, And falling to the ground, whatever this is in Saul's... Saul's mind as he's thinking through this, he, he knows that it, it supersedes his purposes. Okay? It is superior to him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is not an angel from God. This is not an angelic messenger, but this is the Lord Jesus himself. And he notice he says, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Like it is some standoffish thing. Or he doesn't even say, why are you persecuting my church? That's because Christ takes the persecution of believers, of the church, quite personal. That there is a union that we have as believers with Christ. When we, the moment we get saved, we are in Christ. So he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I know some of you are here this morning that have gotten news throughout the week or your world is just crashing, it feels like, and you need this message this morning that, that, that Christ is always with believers. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's not going to go anywhere. Verse 5. Saul asked, he said, Who are you, Lord? Again, obviously there's something powerful, supernatural that's going on here. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Earlier, Saul had gone to the chief priests 
to receive letters, all right, to get this, um, to get these credentials so he could travel through the countryside easier. He had gone to the chief priest, but now he is um, encountered by the high priest of heaven, the ultimate authority on heaven and earth, way beyond the temple walls, way beyond the gates of Jerusalem, way beyond the synagogues of Damascus. His reign, his authority, his rule knows no bounds, has no limits. That who is who Saul is encountered by in, at this moment. He says in verse 6, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. It says in verse 7, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And when we harmonize this with Acts 22, 9, it is clear that the men that were with him, we don't know how many men were with him, but they heard a sound. They knew something was happening, but they couldn't discern the words of the message. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So he is struck with blindness. He doesn't know where to go. He's in unfamiliar territory. And these other people that are with him are either servants. They have some kind of affiliation with the temple and Judaism. They're the ones that have to lead him into, into the city. Verse 9. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is a, uh, an intense experience for Saul to the point that while he is meditating on this, he is trying to figure out what all this is going to mean for him that he's not even able to eat. He's not even able to drink. He's reaching the point. If you don't drink anything in a period of three or more days, it starts to get dangerous, right? So he's starting to reach that, that point. You can, you can fast from food for several weeks and be okay. But water is something that you can only go a few, few days without. So this is obviously because of um, inability or whether it's desire, inability, or whatever, to eat or drink, he's, he's not able to, to partake of food or water yet. Now, this section we're calling Saul the, the convert. Um, this experience here, this encounter that Saul has, this is not an allegory, folks. This is not fictional inspiration. This is an event that occurred in space-time history. And this is a huge event in the life of Saul, but also a huge event in the life of the Christian church. So big that Luke is going to record this event three times. Here he's going to tell it, and then he's going to record it as Paul retelling it two more times in the book of Acts. This is a big deal. In verse, uh, verse 10, moving on, it says, There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Ananias, we don't know much about him except what we see here. He's mentioned one more time in Scripture, and that is Paul referring back to this, this experience. Uh, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise 
and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So the Lord, here's a second instance of the Lord coming to someone. He comes to Ananias. He says, go and meet Saul at Straight Street at the house of Judas. The Straight Street in Damascus still exists today. It's just this straight path through the middle of the city. Uh, if you've been there, you could probably tell us about it. I have not, but it still exists today. And Ananias has already heard some rumors about Saul. Um, the fact that he's kind of this main, uh, the main head honcho to hunt down Christians. And so, understandably so, in verse 13, he's kind of nervous about that this. Verse 13, he says, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. The word that was used in, uh, at the beginning of chapter 8, how Saul ravaged the church, that word is used in other, I think it's the only time it's used in our New Testament, but it's used in other Greek languages for like wild animals tearing at carcasses and stuff. So it's a, it's a messy word. It's a, it's a violent, violent scene. And Saul indeed has done evil to Christians. Verse 14. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, as the Lord is long-suffering and patient with our questions, he says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's almost like the Lord says, look, he's not going to get off completely. <laughs> he's going he's gonna to go through his own share of things, Ananias. Don't worry. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, which is beautiful, Brother Saul. This man who was so tenaciously, tyrannically attacking, pursuing the church is now a brother in the Christian family. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's ironic, Saul, who was coming to persecute Christians, is now dependent on, those, on the very ones that he came to persecute. You know, imagine Ananias comes into the, the house and he bumps over a bag or something of, of Saul's and this scroll rolls out and this, this scroll has the name of all his targets that he's going to hit in, in Damascus. And on that list, you can imagine Ananias sees his own name. But he lays his hands on him to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse 18, and immediately something like scales from his eyes, not actual scales, but something like it, fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. What a remarkable record 
that we have here, something that happened in space, time, history that has super big ramifications for us even today because we have so many of the inspired epistles that, that Paul wrote to, uh, to churches and individuals. It's a dramatic conversion story, isn't it? But Saul's conversion story, it isn't the normative experience for every believer. Like, not every believer's conversion story is going to be this dramatic, right? Um, I mean, think about it. Saul actually saw and heard Jesus. I mean, with his senses. I mean, physically saw him and heard him. Um. This is super dramatic. Um, he, his call to ministry and his conversion take place at the same time. That doesn't happen for everyone. It may happen for some folks, but not everyone. Um, and so there's, there's several things here that you can say. This, this is not typical for how every believer comes to Christ. In fact... You may have had a dramatic experience. Maybe you were sitting in a revival. Maybe you were a kid in church and you heard this, a specific sermon that the Spirit just used to, um, to uh, convict you. And, and you came to the, the altar weeping and crying. Maybe that's your story. Or maybe you were at home and, and then someone led you to the Lord or someone knocked on your door and there were all these emotions. But that's not typical for everyone. Um, there doesn't have to be tears and necessarily emotions at the moment that you believe on, on Christ. It doesn't happen that, that same way for, for everybody. So, although we see Saul's conversion story here, all the details aren't typical of, of everybody's story. But I will tell you this, the transformation is typical. That is a typical pro- byproduct of a converted soul. That there will be transformation. So maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, my, my conversion story definitely was not like Saul's. I mean, I was a kid. Uh, I was five, six, seven years old. But I know I was saved in. And so maybe you're a little insecure this morning. You're thinking, well, I didn't murder anybody. I wasn't doing drugs at, at six years old. I wasn't. Uh, I, I hadn't robbed a bank or anything. There wasn't a whole lot of transformation to take place in my life. But I heard somebody say this this week: every conversion is a story of death to life, and death to life is always radical. And so, for me. My story didn't necessarily have the drinking, carousing element to it. Most of my sin, not most, but a lot of my sin was pharisaical type of sin. Um, pride, self-righteousness type, type thing. And there, of course, there's other th- things involved in my sin and what I was converted from. And what I've been transformed from. But it's important to understand. Every conversion may not be this dramatic. But every conversion will have an element of transformation. And it may not happen in an instant. The instant you're saved, there's an instant transformation of your position 
in Christ. Some of the experiential things may take longer, but there will be transformation. So we've seen Saul the persecutor, Saul the convert. Um, Verse 20, let's look at Saul the perplexing preacher. The end of verse 19 says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Again, this isn't going to be everybody's story where you're, a, uh, you're an attacker of the church and a preacher the next day. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, He is the Son of God. What a dramatic shift <laughs> to believe prior that Jesus was a blasphemer, that he was a heretic, um, that he rightly died on a, a criminal's cross to saying he is the son of God. And by the way, the primary object of repentance, or the, um, the, yes, the primary object of repentance Um, at salvation is our attitude towards Jesus. Does it affect the way we view sin? Of course. Does it affect the way we about face and turn from sin? Yes. But the thing, the, the object of repentance that's going to influence all of that is repenting about the person of Jesus Christ, who he is. Before you were saved, Jesus was maybe just a historical figure. Maybe he was a moral teacher. Maybe worse to you. Maybe he was a liar. Maybe he got what he deserved in your mind. But there is a shift, complete, radical shift. Turn about face in the person of Jesus. He is the Son of God. Verse 21, and all who heard him were amazed. They're trying to figure this out and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So what happens at our, at our conversion is we have this, renew, this brand new, uh, realistic, true view of who Jesus is. And we have a new respect, a new fear, a new love for him. And that new love that we get at conversion for Jesus, it also drives us um, to tell others about his glorious person. It affects the way that we view and value people, the way we care about and for them. But all of that flows from a desire of, of wanting the truth about Jesus being told. And him, him being glorified through that proclamation. And Saul, here he goes from this persecutor to now this preacher who's going to the synagogues. And the synagogue leader says, oh, here is, the, you know, you've all heard of Saul of Tarsus who trained other, under Gamaliel. Ah, Saul, what, what kind of insight do you have for us? today from from the law or some other passage in the old testament and he stands up and he starts quoting maybe these passages that philip had talked to to the ethiopian eunuch and he starts saying oh yeah by the way this this law has been pointing to jesus by the way he's the son of god (laughs) 
And this is perplexing to everyone there in Damascus. By the way, while we're at it, some maybe this morning I've even used Saul and Paul interchangeably. Uh, Saul is the Jewish form of his name. Paul is the Romanized form of his name. So God didn't change his name once he got converted. And he was still the same guy. He didn't get a new name like Abram went to Abraham or Sarah went to Sarai. Same name, just a Jewish form and a Gentile form. Um, and in fact, somebody makes, I think, a pretty good argument that, that Luke may have intentionally just used his name Saul up to this point to build drama in telling, um, in telling Paul's conversion story to readers who only knew him up to this point as Paul, that perhaps they didn't know his, his background um, in, in full-fledged background, at least. So we have Saul the persecutor, Saul the convert, Saul the perplexing preacher, and last this morning we have Saul the persecuted. You see the full circle here? That Saul begins as the persecutor of Christians. By the end of the passage, he's going to be a persecuted Christian himself. Verse 23 says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Okay, so they at first they hear him standing up in the synagogues, and uh, they're like, "Oh, this is this is not what we expected from from Saul of Tarsus, right?" And so then they say, "Okay, well, we're going to start publicly debating him. We know we know our Old Testament as well. We know the the old the traditions of the scribes and the religious leaders. We're going to out debate him and prove him wrong. But when they figure out that they can't out debate him," Their next step is they just opt to to kill him off, (laughs) which was done to John the Baptist, which was done to Jesus, which was done to Stephen, what they wanted to do to the apostles without the Lord's intervention. They they couldn't out-debate him, so they plotted to just kill him instead. Uh, Verse 24, but their plot became known known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in, the, in a basket. If, if he'd have just had an iPhone, they would have been able to track him the whole time, right? Um, but uh, they took him in the middle of the night, and in many of those cities, houses, homes, rooms were built into the city walls. And so one of the homes that he at least had access to was on the city wall, and they lowered him in a, in a basket um, to escape that night. Galatians chapter 1, Paul talks a little bit about his um, early conversion days, and it's probably sometime in here, um, probably before this, that Paul had... Uh, spent some time in Arabia, um, like he says in Galatians chapter 1, and then probably came back, and then the, the persecution on him intensifies, and that's when he has to leave Damascus, and he goes to Jerusalem. But we find out from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that there in Damascus that the Jewish leaders and the Roman civil authorities were all in cahoots together, um, 
maybe the, the Roman governor or whatever just wanted to appease the Jews, but he was helping them out. And so he had to sneak out in a basket in the middle of the night. So Saul was persecuted in Damascus, but then he gets to Jerusalem and he's going to be persecuted there. This is three years after his conversion, okay, according to Galatians. Um, verse 26, it says, When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Still three years, and they're still very cautious about him because they know the reputation that, that he has. Verse um, 27, it says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had pre preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Um, Galatians 1 also talks about at, at this time that he saw Peter and James. James being um, likely the Lord's half-brother, James. Um, it says in verse 28, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So if things are bad in Damascus, and they heat up after three years, now he's in the hub of, of Phariseeism, right? And things aren't going to be much better there. It says in verse 29, And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. The Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. Verse 30, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So there's this new plot to kill, to kill him. They can't out-debate him. Um, they can't stand against the power from which he is preaching in Jerusalem either. So they send him off. Um, they go to Caesarea. And by the way, anytime someone goes from Jerusalem, just about anywhere, it's downhill because the altitude at Jerusalem. So they send him to Jerusalem, which is about 74 miles, uh, I'm sorry, to Caesarea. That's about 74 miles from Jerusalem. And from there, he presumably sells to uh, Tarsus, his hometown, which by land uh, is 560 miles from Jerusalem. So what's going to happen is Saul is going to spend about 14 years now um, in the Syria, Cilicia area near Tarsus. And that area is going to be his base of operations for around a decade or even a little bit more. And the next time we see Saul is going to be about five years later. Um, and it's when Barnabas, uh, I think, believe it's Barnabas that goes to Tarsus to find Saul and say, Hey, Saul, I've got a ministry opportunity for you, man. Um, but it'll be five years or so before we see Saul again. So you see this complete transformation in the life of Saul. He was Saul the persecutor, Saul the convert, Saul the perplexing preacher, and Saul the persecuted. And that's because Jesus transforms people. And Jesus can save anyone. In Paul's own writings... Inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says in 1 Timothy 1, um, 15 and in the 16, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You're here this morning, you say, Kevin, you say God can save anyone, but you don't know my history. You don't know my addictions to 
whatever. You don't know how I've hurt this person, that person. You don't know how dark my thoughts have been. He said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul, talking about himself, said, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So Saul is put forth, Paul is put forth as the example that God can truly save anyone. Someone who is a radical persecutor of Christians because of their views and their beliefs about Jesus. And his views, his beliefs, completely changed because the Holy Spirit regenerated him. So the question is, we we hear that God can save anyone, but do we really believe that God can save anyone? And if we really believe that God can save anyone, that's, that's certainly going to influence um, the diamond dynamics of our prayer life, won't it? The way we interchange with people. I mean, historically, I think of some prominent examples of conversion and transformation. There was Rahab the harlot, Old Testament, but she was still converted. She was a prostitute living in Jericho. And God takes her, changes her heart, her life. She becomes part of the genealogy of Christ. Personally, I think the evidence is there in in Daniel of the conversion of of Nebuchadnezzar, who was a super proud, you read that text and it's, look what I have done, I, 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 I. And what does God do? He, he sends uh, judgment, whatever you want to call it, to change uh, Nebuchadnezzar, to humble him. And Nebuchadnezzar is indeed humbled. And, and at the end of the chapter, it says, I extol the living God. Uh, in Christian history, Augustine was someone that had been raised around Christianity that was running the complete opposite way, and God did a miraculous work in his heart. And that Augustine, with you know some of his um, some of his hangups here and there, uh, has influenced a lot of the wording of uh, modern day theology in the Christian church today has influenced us on on how he has understood and explained scripture John Newton part of the slave trade is converted and became a, a hardcore abolitionist of, of slavery the author of amazing grace C.S. Lewis well-known atheist who was slowly, seems like, converted, but nonetheless converted. 
And in, in Acts alone, we're going to come across some remarkable conversion stories. There's going to be a jailer. There's going to be demon-possessed people. Um, it's, it's pretty incredible. In our own time, people I can think of, if you've ever read biography of, of Abby Johnson, who was a, a leader in a, a, a Planned Parenthood facility, was converted and now is huge, huge pro-life advocate. Um, another story that I, that I know, there was a young lady who was about uh, 15 years old that moved into a neighborhood. It wasn't too long that um, this young lady um, that came from a very liberal family that had moved um, to a college town um, from up north and she became friends with the next door neighbor who was about the same age and they were attracted to each other started hanging out but the the boys parent I mean, the boy was a christian so was his parents so they were not allowed to date which by the way is a good rule you should not date someone who does not know the lord okay i'm not saying don't date somebody who doesn't go to church I'm saying make sure they know the Lord, whether they go to church or not, okay? Um, But they weren't allowed to date. They could hang out in groups or whatever, which they did for a while. And she even went to church quite a bit with, with that family. But during that time, the assistant pastor at that church um, was kind of cautioning the boy against pursuing this girl or getting his hopes up because, in his words, people like that hardly ever get saved, in his words. A little bit more time went on, and guess what? That girl came to know the Lord. That girl went, guess who she went to to lead her to Christ? The assistant pastor who had said, Those kind of people don't get saved. So anyone can be saved. And the Lord can transform anyone. And it is the real Jesus. The real Jesus transforms people. I'm not talking about caricatures. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, you just hang your hat on uh, Christianity, the church. I'm talking about the real Jesus. The real, actual Jesus. When you know him, he transforms you bow your heads and close your eyes? The worship team is going to come forward. They're going to lead us in a song in a moment. Um, Let me just ask you this morning a very personal question. Do you see fruit of transformation in your life? We're not going to be legalistic and say it's got to, you got to dress like me, you got to talk like me, anything like that. But do you see transformations in your in your character your attitude towards sin most importantly your attitude towards jesus um has there been a moment in your life that you can point to and say hey that's that's the moment i got saved has there 
So maybe you're here this morning and you would say, Kevin, there's never been that moment in my life where I have truly been converted and I turned to Christ. Would you pray for me? Is there anybody like that this morning that would be honest enough to say, Kevin, would you pray for me? Just slip your hands up real quick. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed all over the building. Anybody like that would just say, hey, Kevin, would you pray for me? I don't know if I've truly been converted. Maybe there are others here that we, we fall into this uh, apathy sometimes. We lose passion. Um, we, we lose the belief that, that God really can truly save anyone from the, whether it's someone who sits on thrones or someone that sits on the bar stool. God can save anyone. And you just want a renewed vision of that a renewed perspective of that ask the Lord to do that in your heart I mean it's something that I I need the Lord to do for me or maybe you're here this morning totally something totally unrelated to anything that I've said in this in this message and you're just struggling and you need to pray with God's people this morning would you would everybody just go ahead and stand to your feet if you need to do some kind of business with God and you like some help or talk with someone or pray with someone this morning. I'm up here and I can hook you up with someone. As the worship team leads us, use this place as a, an altar to humble ourselves before God. Just do business with Him however He leads.